welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. In John's Gospel, Jesus makes several statements that start with the words, I am. Words that may not mean much to us, but certainly caught the attention of his audience. Teaching team member Jeff Norris opens the series, Pictures of Jesus, with this message entitled, I am the Bread of Life, which covers John, chapter 6, verses 22 to 35. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We're calling this series uh, Pictures of Jesus. And what we're doing is we're going to be in the book of John, not 1st, 2nd, 3rd John that are at the end of your New Testament, but the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Gospel meaning good news of Jesus, where John tells the story And all the various aspects of the story of Jesus' ministry here on earth leading up to his death and his resurrection. And uh, we're going to be walking specifically through the seven I am statements of Jesus. The specific points where he makes this declaration of who he is. I am fill in the blank, bread of life, light of the world, good shepherd, gate, vine, Life, death, and resurrection, way, truth, and life. He says these things about himself that are really profound. Now, when you read them in 21st century America, you may not go, well, yeah, that's profound. But in the first century Jewish culture and society and belief system, the things that he's saying in these statements is, is easily profound. It's, it's one of those things where the, the people listening to him would have immediately gone, can, can he say that? Is that, is that okay for a carpenter from Nazareth to make that claim about himself? So we're going to look at these. We're going to ask those questions. What did he say? And why is it so important? Why is it so critical for us to understand what he is saying about himself in that claim that he made? And so here's one of the things we want to offer you. Uh, if you're new to the faith... Or if you're here and you're kind of investigating Christianity, you're seeking to understand what it means to follow Christ. Maybe you're here and you are very against Christianity and you've just kind of shown up to to maybe figure out what it is we talk about and those kind of things. Or maybe you've been in the faith for a really long time. What, What I would encourage you is if you're new to the faith or if you're investigating the faith and you've never read the book of John before, we have a gift for you. As you leave today uh, at the counters, the Start Here counters, there's, we have a lot of these Gospel of John journal books. And I love the way that these are laid out. Uh, on one side of the page, you've got the, the Scripture, you've got the Gospel of John. On the other side of the page, just a blank uh, with lines, blank page with lines for you to be able to take your notes, write down thoughts that you have, jot down questions, uh, just things that you're gleaning from the text as you read. And so those of you who've been uh, Christians for a long time and you've read the Gospel of John a number of times, I would say, hold off, don't grab these yet, see if we have any left over at the end of this series. But for those who are new to the faith or investigating the faith, this is our gift to you. And we'd love for you to read the, the, um, the book of John with us. And then I'll extend to every one of us, even if you don't pick up one of these, you have a Bible, those of you who've been Christians uh, for a while, if you, hopefully you have a Bible, if you don't, let us know. We would love to give you one. 
Uh, but let's all read the book of John together during the series. That would be a fantastic thing for, the, for our body of Christ to be able to uh, walk together through this book and the parts that we're not going to discuss here from the stage, you'll read, you'll know the context, you'll know the stories around the stories that we're talking about. And I think it would be a great blessing to our church for all of us in our time alone with the Lord to be reading through the same text of scripture. So let's do that together. Let's read the gospel of John. So let me pray. We're going to jump into the first I am statement uh, in the book of John. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to open your scriptures. Lord, we are mindful of the reality that throughout the course of history, since the establishment of your church, your people have not always had access to your scriptures. And so, Lord, we thank you for the great privilege it is to very casually open the word of God. Uh, But, Lord, we pray that this morning would be anything but casual, Uh, that your Holy Spirit would take the living word of God on these pages and press it deep into our hearts, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and ultimately, oh, Father, would you reveal yourself to us as we study the person, the Son of God, Jesus. Open our eyes. Give us wisdom to understand. Give us eyes to see your beauty. And would you do it all for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let me tell you something about myself. Um, I can eat. We can all eat, but I mean I can eat. I can, I can put down some food. That was fine back in the college days. It's not so fine now, right? I have to think more about how much food I'm putting down and what kind of food I'm putting down. And here's the thing about myself as well. Um, maybe you can relate. The food doesn't necessarily have to be good. It just, that's just the way it is. I mean, don't get me wrong. I enjoy a good meal, but it can be subpar food and I'll eat it. There have been many times where I've been dinner with friends, been at dinner with friends or, or family, and I've ordered the same thing as somebody else, and they say, yeah, this just isn't very good, is it? I'm like, tastes good to me. I don't see the problem. And so here's, here's my problem with the way that I can eat, is, is I can oftentimes gorge myself on subpar and even unhealthy food that's filled with empty calories, Right? I mean, that's, I, I expected a few amens there, but, um, <laughs> but that's, I need to know I'm not alone in this struggle, guys. Come on. Um, but I can do that. I can gorge myself on good food, right? I mean, and healthy food, but I can really gorge myself on subpar unhealthy food that's filled with, with empty calories. And I can be pretty content doing that. I mean, hopefully I, I recognize, wait, this is not what God intended for the body. And I can confess gluttony and try to move past that and those kind of things. But it's a struggle of mine, Right? I want us to see this morning that spiritually, for every single one of us, not just those of us in this room, but those of us in this world, that's true spiritually. We are a hungry people. We are hungry people. And what we will do is we will gorge ourselves on subpar and even unhealthy solutions filled with empty promises. That's what we do. That's the nature of the human heart is we are all driven by this this deep longing within ourselves that we don't even really know how to put a a word to or a phrase to, but there's something that's driving us. There's something that's compelling us that we keep reaching for, and we may not even know what that is that we're reaching for, but 
the more we reach for it, the more we realize that whatever I'm gorging myself on is not giving it to me. It's just, it's not satisfying me the way that I would long for it to. Maybe that's the phrase that we tag to it. And, and often in church, we've used this phrase a lot. and It can feel a little cliche, but I think it's the right phrase. And that is soul satisfaction. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize the truth that humans are driven by this insatiable, it feels like a very insatiable desire for meaning, for purpose, for value, for identity, for worth. And so we'll run to all kinds of subpar, unhealthy things and gorge ourselves on them until the point that we say, okay, that's not it. Maybe it worked for a little while, but it's, it's not giving me what I really long for it to give me. And we'll do it with anything. And we'll do it with things that we can easily recognize are not healthy. I mean, we'll do it with things that we, anyone could look at and say, hey, that's blatantly sinful. That's blatantly unhealthy. It's blatantly not good for you to, to run after that and try to satisfy yourself on that thing. We'll do it with good things too. We'll do it with things that are biblical things. My biggest struggle right now is that my, my identity and my worth and my value, my purpose can be so wrapped up in the success of my children. Being a parent is a godly calling. There's nothing wrong with being a parent. But when I begin to twist it in such a way to where the success of my children begins to um, note for me, to, to identify with me in such a way that I am now finding my value and worth in my children, then I know I'm running to something that will never give me what only God can. We'll do it with a job. We'll do it with a career. We'll do it with a team. Monday night was hard for me. <laughs> Let me pause. Say congratulations to my Clemson uh, brothers and sisters. Oh, that was hard. Okay. Um. <laughs> but no, seriously, we'll do it with a team. Like you, you think that when things are all going well, and whatever it is that you're placing your worth and your identity in, and you're seeking that soul satisfaction, and as long as those things are working for you, then you think, okay, this is it. I've, with the team, I, I felt like, man, I've matured. I don't, I don't really care if they win or lose. I've become so spiritually mature. It doesn't matter anymore, right? If they lose, I'll be fine. They lost, and I was like, oh, 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 that hurt, right? And so we realize, oh my goodness, my identity is still so wrapped up in whether Alabama wins or not. And then you go, that's so stupid. But I do it, and I struggle with it over and over again. We'll do it with anything. And so where we're headed this morning is we're heading to this place in Scripture where Jesus very pointedly presents himself to us as the only one who will satisfy our souls. The only one. So let's go there. John chapter 6. Turn to John chapter 6. And John chapter 6 is, is one of the longest chapters in the Bible. So we're going to spend our rest of the time this morning reading it, okay? No, I'm joking. I wouldn't do that. But it is long, and so I think it's appropriate that I give you context of what's been happening in this chapter leading up to uh, verse 22, where I am going to start reading the text. So in your scripture, in your Bible there, if you, if you have one with you, um, it, it, you'll notice that John chapter 6 starts probably in your Bible with the heading of Jesus feeds the 5,000. Okay, even if you haven't been in or around church very much at all, that's a story that you've probably at least heard about. It's one of the greatest miracles that Jesus 
performed. I don't know how we rank miracles, but at least from a human standpoint, uh, it's, it's really remarkable what Jesus did in this story. He's, he's, it's at the height of his fame. Okay, just, just kind of, I want you to try to enter into the story here. We are entering the story uh, where Jesus, this is at the very pinnacle of his, of his fame according to the world. Uh, this is rock star status for Jesus. This is Beatles mania. This is whatever is equivalent to that today. You know, Taylor Swift mania, I don't know. But it's, it's, it's like crazy. Okay, so there's 5,000 people that are following him, but it's really more than that because in the biblical days, in that culture, they only recorded uh, statistically the men. So you'll notice when you read on your own that it talks about there were 5,000 men. Well, what does that mean as far as, what about women and children? We don't really know, but scholars have estimated that it's probably very safe to assume that when you count women and children, it was probably somewhere around 20,000 people. So I want you to get your mind around this. I want you to just think about, like, don't just read the text. Put yourself there as best as you possibly can. Imagine it. Imagine a guy walking through the countryside of Galilee and 20,000 people are following him. How crazy is that? Now, now, maybe that doesn't connect. Imagine we lifted these curtains and we could all look out on old Alabama road here and a dude walks down and 20,000 people are following him. Just to give you a little context, that's 10 times as many as this auditorium sits. Seats. I don't know the English there, but you get it. Ten times is what's in this room, just following this guy. Like, so I want you to picture that. I mean, it's, it's a frenzy around Jesus. He's been performing miracle after miracle after miracle, showing the nature of the kingdom that he is bringing, the wholeness that he is restoring, that sin brought into the world, everything that was fractured through disease and through calamity and disaster and brokenness after brokenness after brokenness. He's given us little glimpses as he ushers in his kingdom of the healing that comes through Jesus and that will feel, uh, fully come one day when he returns again. And people are freaking out. So they're following him, it's late in the day, it's starting to get dark, and they haven't eaten all day. Jesus says, we gotta feed these people. His disciples are like, where are we gonna get food? Andrew says, well, there's this little boy over here with five loaves of bread and two fish. I imagine at that point, the rest of the disciples laughed at him. It's like, okay. And Jesus says, bring it to me. And he takes five loaves of bread and two fish. You could fit that on this, on this podium right here. And he multiplies it for 10 times the people that are in this room. So much so that 12 baskets are left over. They were able to eat and eat and eat and gorge themselves on more bread and fish than they could ever imagine. That was an unbelievable treat for them because the, a lot of people, I don't know if I should say the majority, but a number of people that would have been following him would not have eaten likely in probably several days because this is not a culture where you can go down to the grocery store and get food whenever you want to. This is a culture where they ate little dainty things, little pieces and morsels of bread, and they never hardly ever ate their fill. So you can imagine when Jesus finishes filling their bellies to that extent, how much more was the frenzy around him? They were hysterical. 
Verse 15 says this, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they are ready. I can't take it anymore. He's done everything that we want. We want the king who will come and give us everything we want. And he's here. Remember what Carrie said in the video? What if it's the greatest mercy of God that he doesn't give us what we think we need? But they see Jesus giving everything that they want, and they say, he filled our, look how much we just ate. Let's do it, king, now, come on, make him king. We're going to take him by force. And I love what it says because it's like, okay, sometimes I think we read past these little phrases that speak to the divinity of Jesus in his humanity. Because remember, there's 20,000-ish people around, and it says at the end of verse 15, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. How does that happen? How do you get away from 20,000 people and nobody see you and where you went? But he gets away because he knows this is not why I came. I didn't come to give you what you want. I came to give you what you need. And what you need is deliverance and rescue from your sin and from yourself. And so I'm not going to let that happen. You're not going to make me king. And boom, he's gone. So he leaves, goes up to the mountain, wherever that is. It's nighttime. His disciples say, you know what? We should probably get out of here too. <laughs> I can imagine they're all going, where did Jesus go? I guess we should go too. So they get in the boat. And they began making their way across the Sea of Galilee back to kind of what was the hub of ministry for Jesus and his disciples, Capernaum. And the disciples have rowed through the Sea of Galilee about three to four miles while a storm is brewing. Now, this would have been pretty normal for them to do this, at which point I pause and go, wow, I'm lazy. But they would have rowed three to four miles, according to the text. And they're starting to get concerned because the storm is getting stronger. And then all of a sudden, we know, we've heard about this story. Jesus begins to walk towards them on the water. They, they, they panic at first. They're frightened at first. But then he steps onto the boat. And one of these, another one of these God moments happens. Uh, at the end of verse 21, it says, Then they were glad to take him into the boat once they realized it was Jesus. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Huh. Did it grow a motor? Like what happened? What happened is the Son of God stepped on the boat and something happened that only happens when he's aboard. God does what only he can do. And so here they are. They're back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and it's morning. It's the next morning. That's where we're picking up. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So again, enter into the story. You wake up. I guess they slept in, in the grass all night. I don't know. But they wake up the next morning and Jesus is not there. And they panic. Our, our traveling grocery store is gone. We've got a problem, guys. We've got to find him. So the last two words of verse 24 is they were seeking Jesus. They got to find him. So they get into the boats. They go across. They know that he's probably gone to Capernaum. And they find him there. Watch what happens. 
When they found him, verse 25, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, I love Jesus' response. I wish I could get away with replying to people the way that Jesus did. You ask a question, Jesus goes, that's nice. I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. This happens all the time. People ask him a question and he's like, I know your heart. I'm not going to address that superficial question you asked. I'm going to go straight to your heart. So they say, when did you come over here? Like, really, seriously, like, how did this happen? And he says, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You want me for what you want. You're seeking me for what you want. I'm going to give you three things to kind of take away and observe from the text that's true of our tendencies that we see in the people in this story. The first one is this. Our tendency is to seek Jesus for the bread he can give rather than for the bread that he is. In other words, it's our tendency, it's the, it's the nature of the human heart to seek after God, to seek after Jesus not for him, but for what we want him to give us. The best way I know how to illustrate this, and, and I've shared this before in the past, and so I apologize for using the same illustration, but it's the best illustration that I have felt personally for me that really brings this to life. And, and it comes from many years ago when uh, we were adopting our son, Samuel. He's 16 now. At the time, he had just turned three and uh, we were in Ukraine adopting him, and we got to go every day. We had to spend a month in country, and uh, every day was spent going to the, you know, doing the paperwork and meeting with the government officials and signing what we needed to sign and pay what we need to pay and all those kind of things. But every day we got to visit Samuel, which was such a blessing because over time he grew more used to us and accustomed to us and those kind of things. And so we would pray, God, uh, as we get two to three hours with Samuel today, would you continue to build a bond between him and us that he would slowly begin to see us, not as these grown-ups who come to play with him, but as mommy and daddy, or as in his language, the Russian language, papa. And so each day I was kind of hoping that there would be a somewhat of a breakthrough. You have to be careful about how much you hold and, and, and the, uh, your physical touch at first because you want to make sure the attachment is happening correctly and the intimacy between mother and son and father and son is, is developing appropriately. And so the longer we spent time with Samuel, the more that I would just get eager for that moment to happen. For the moment to where he would initiate physical contact, to where he would begin to see me not just as a, as a guy who would play with him, but as daddy. An intimate relationship was beginning to happen. And so one day, I'm standing there, I don't remember exactly what I was doing or looking at, but I'm standing there about like this, and I come and I feel this little bitty hand grab mine, and I, I know it's not Rachel's. And my heart leaps. And I think, okay, this is it. He's now seeing me as daddy, and he's coming to me. He begins to talk in Russian that I don't understand, and he leads me across the room. And the next thing we know, I know, we're standing looking at a shelf, and he, holding my hand in this hand, he takes this hand, and he points to the top of the shelf, and he says, that. And suddenly it hits me. It hasn't happened. He sees me as the means to get him what he really wants. I'm the big guy who can reach the toy he can't reach. I'm way more 
powerful than he is, more able than he is. And he doesn't see me as daddy. He sees me as he can get me what I want. And I don't say this just because pastors have to have some, like, you know, powerful illustration or something. It really, in the moments after that, I can remember sitting there watching him play. And it's as, as if the Holy Spirit was in my ear saying, this is exactly what you do with me. You come and you grab my hand and my heart leaps only to lead me to the shelf of your wants. Would you get that for me? Would you get that for me? Now, it's okay to ask God for things. He tells us to do that in the scriptures. That's not wrong. But we begin to twist it in such a way to where Jesus is not the one we're going to because we want Jesus. Jesus is the one we're going to because he can get for us what we really want, and it's not him. We go to Jesus, we seek after him, not because of him, but because of what he, what he can give us. This is what these people were doing. And Jesus knew it. He said, you didn't come to me because you wanted me. You came to me because I've, you ate more food than you've probably eaten in five years. And you want more of that. But you need to understand that you weren't made for that. You were made for me. Listen to what continues to happen. Jesus begins to present himself in verse 26, in verse 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus is beginning to present himself as saying, look, I am the one you need. I'm the one who will satisfy your soul. You can eat and eat and eat bread all you want, but I am the one who will give you what you're really longing for. You got to eat to stay alive, but you're looking at it as more than that. You're wanting it to be your God. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, second thing I want you to notice of our tendency, we are just like these people. Second tendency is this. We often work towards God rather than to believe in him. It's the natural predisposition of the human heart that if there is a God, then it's only logical that we work our way to him, that we improve ourselves moralistically, religiously, to eventually get our place, get ourselves to a place to where whoever the God is that exists looks down upon me and says, your good outweighs your bad. I can now be nice to you. I can now accept you. I can now bless you. And so we work on this performance scale with God. And this is how it's been since the very beginning of time. We think that we've got to work ourselves to God. This is what those people interacting with Jesus thought back then. But what the gospel says and what God has shown us over and over and over again in the scriptures about the kingdom of God through Jesus is this, is that no level of moral reformation, no, no level of moral behavioralistic change will ever, ever, ever get you even an inkling of stance before God that would be favorable because of our sin. And so this is one of the unique things, the unique thing, the bedrock unique thing about Christianity. Randy has talked about this a lot over the years where uh, every other religious belief system in the world from the history, from the very beginning of history has always been based on man's performance. 
they're all going to present themselves differently on the surface, but like an onion, if you begin to peel back the layers at the bedrock of those belief systems, it's always going to be, what do you have to do in order to get that God that you believe in to be pleased and to have mercy? Christianity, one of the apologetics, if you will, for why Christianity cannot be for man is because we have proven time and time again that if we're going to come up with a belief system, it's always going to be on work. The work of humans to get to God, but Christianity is so turned on its head that it doesn't even make sense to us. That we go, hold on, you're telling me that God would do the work for us? That he would actually come to us and do what we are fully incapable of doing? That he would be morally perfect in my place? And that not only that, that he would take his moral perfection and crucify himself on the cross, getting the awful death that I should have gotten because of my sin, yet he took it for me. And then he would raise from the dead, defeating the penalty of death itself that I would never have power to defeat. He does it for me so that my response to that is not work, but belief by faith. That's, that's, that doesn't sound right. It doesn't make sense to us because we want to be a people that perform to make God happy when Jesus is the one who performed, if you will, for us and he's eternally happy in him. So our faith, what God's call upon our lives is to believe upon him. That's what Jesus says in the very next verse, verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. I love that he says that. You want work? Well, listen, it's the work of God, not your work. The work of God is that you believe in him whom he has sent. Are you working to try to get to God? If you are, it's hopeless. Stop now. You'll never be good enough. But there's better news. You can rest in the finished work of Jesus in your, in your place. Believe upon him by faith and say, you are my substitute. You are the one in whom I will trust. And you'll begin to experience the soul-satisfying joy that comes with belief versus work. Watch what happens. These people are still confused. Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, if I were Jesus, thank goodness I'm not. It's clear that I'm not. But I, this would be my great moment of sarcasm. <laughs> Peter, James, John, can you believe these people? Were, they, were, they, were you not there last night? Did you not see the five loaves and two fish thing? Like, did you miss that? You're asking me what work do I do that you may believe in me? But Jesus is patient. He's patient with them as they continue. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, are you as, are you as great as our fathers? I mean, look what happened when they led us. When Moses led us, man, bread literally fell from heaven. Can you do that? Look at Jesus' response. Verse 32, then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. They are still confused. They think it's physical bread. We just want to be full. And Jesus is trying to help connect the dots for them to say, look, guys, that whole thing that happened back at the Exodus when I sent Moses to 
to lead the people of Israel out of bondage and slavery in and, and Egypt. And, and once they were freed from the Egyptians across the Red Sea, they were now in the wilderness. And, and yes, I, literally bread fell, manna type bread kind of thing fell from heaven. That provided food for them in the wilderness for a temporary time. Guys, get it. Listen, this is Jesus talking to these guys back then. He says, listen, you've got to see... That was all foreshadowing, not just to fill their bellies then, but to point to something greater to come, which is me. I am coming out of heaven to be the very nourishment to your souls, not just temporarily, but for all of eternity. He's wanting these people to see the metaphor, the foreshadowing of how all of Scripture points to him. It's about him. Interestingly enough, just a cool little side note, Bethlehem, Ephratha, right? When it says that Jesus is from Bethlehem, Ephratha, Bethlehem means house of bread. He came through a very place that existed that basically said, the bread is here. Get ready to dine upon me and satisfy your souls forever. And speaking of forever, notice Notice how much Jesus talks about eternity. Now, we didn't get to read some of these verses, but I'll read them to you right now. Verse 40 says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So verse 35, I just realized I didn't read the verse, the actual verse where he says, I am the bread of life. Go back to verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. That's the statement. There's the I am. Don't miss this. When Moses was sent, by the way, when God sent Moses to the Israelites to lead them out of bondage in the Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Moses says, well, who shall I tell them has sent me? What name shall I tell them? Because nobody knew the name of God. And God's response is, tell them that I am has sent you. And we go, that's a name? It's the name of God. That was a name that God gave himself. I am that I am. So it was not lost on these people that when Jesus starts with I am, we may read past that in 21st century America, but first century Jew goes, whoa, look, hold up now. You can't use those words. Those are only reserved for God. To which Jesus says, I know. I am the bread of life. And he connects the bread of life with eternity. I just read you verse 40. Listen to verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then he says it again. I am the bread of life. Then verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Insinuating he will live forever with me. Then he goes on to say, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now that's, at that point, Jesus goes into this long explanation about how he's going to give his flesh. And if you want to have any part to do with him, you've got to eat of his uh, flesh and drink of his blood. And the people go, huh? um, say what now? Because this is pre-cross. They don't understand why he came. They don't understand that his destination is the cross to break his body and shed his blood on behalf of the sins of the world. They don't see that yet. So they think he's talking about cannibalism. You and I would be freaked out too. Say, so you know what? I think it's about time to go home. But Jesus did that on purpose. This is one of the things that I love about Jesus. Is, is Jesus is about weeding out those who are following for the wrong reasons and attracting those who see him for him. 
who understand that he is the only one who will satisfy the human heart, not just now, but for all of eternity. And so in our Instagram culture where it's like, if I get 20,000 followers, I got to do everything I can to keep them. I got to make them happy. He's got 20,000 followers and he's like, hey, you got you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. See ya. And at the end of chapter six, that's what happens. They go, wait, he's, t- he's wanting us to eat his flesh, drink his blood. What, what is this? And they don't understand the table, communion, none of that. And so they go, okay, yeah, I, we're gone. And most all of it says in the, the chapter, most everyone has left Jesus. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to go home too? And Peter, as he normally would, speaks on behalf of the 12. And he says, where are we going to go? We've left everything. You are the one who have the words of life. You want life? You want soul satisfaction? Run to Jesus. The third thing, uh, just to know how to fill in your blanks, is that we get so focused in the now. Our tendency is to focus on the now rather than the eternal. We get so caught up in what's happening around us in the immediate that we forget that Jesus is the one who satisfies us for eternity. Uh, Randy mentioned it last week. I'll just briefly mention it here. Uh, He said, we don't talk about hell enough. I would also add to that, in full agreement, we also probably don't talk about heaven enough. The scriptures, this is not something we're coming up with. This is what the scriptures teach us. Heaven and hell are a real place. And depending upon whether you believe upon the bread of life, Jesus, every single person who's ever walked the face of the earth will go one or the other. And Jesus is the one who says, I am the bread of life. Only in me is eternal life, meaning heaven, forever and ever with him. I want to be careful with our time, but I want to give you one quick little application. It it could be really easy, I think. It would be tempting to hear all this and to go, is this just a bunch of Christian pastor jargon? I mean, seriously, in the throes of the chaos of life, am I just supposed to be just satisfied in Jesus? And let me just make clear, this is not a feeling we're talking about. It can come and go as a feeling. But you may have long seasons in your life where you don't feel satisfied in Christ. It's not a feeling that we're talking about here. It's a reality based on the truth of the word of God and the words of Jesus. And he's gracious to give us these little morsels of feelings from time to time as we follow him where we do feel greatly satisfied. And those morsels that we get, those little pieces of bread that we get in life now are a foretaste, it's just a foreshadowing yet again of when he comes again and all things are said and done, then in all of its fullness, we will be satisfied for all of eternity. So I think about the the mom. She's got three kids under the age of four. None of them are potty trained. She's got one hand on the phone calling the doctor's office trying to get an appointment set up because little Johnny's got an ear infection. While she's on the phone, he's wailing in the background and no matter what she gives him, he won't stop. Meanwhile, with the other hand, she's trying to feed the newborn this little food that the newborn keeps spitting out. And then, on top of that, two-year-old walks in and has had a blowout and poops everywhere. (laughs) Are you telling me, Jeff, that in that moment, I'm supposed to have this some crazy, overwhelming experience of a life is chaos, but boy, am I satisfied in Jesus. This is great, guys. No. 
Life is chaos. And it's hard, but the hope is this. The hope is that in the midst of that, she is able to go. Man, this is hard. This is frustrating. I want to throw this phone through the wall, but there is Jesus. And although I may not feel him now, I have experienced him to be. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and he is satisfying. And in the moment, I don't feel it, but I know there is a day coming where it will never end. He's worth it. He's better. And that little nugget of truth compels us through the chaos. Jesus is the bread of life. Father, thank you that you have given us your word. We started off praying that we are so grateful that we have access to your scriptures. Now we pray, Father, that having heard them and having thought and meditated upon them, Lord, would you press them deep into our hearts? Would you do what only you can do with your word and with your truth to open our eyes to our need for you, oh Jesus. You don't always give us what we want, but you give us you. And the greatest news of the gospel is not that we get all these great things. The greatest news of the gospel is that we get you, Jesus. Be praised and worshiped in our hearts now as we continue to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.